The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So when I was 17 years old, I moved from the little town of Isabela, Puerto Rico, back to Windsor, California, which is where I grew up, to graduate with my friends from junior high school. When I got back into town, it was just the second semester of my senior year. I decided it was a good idea to head over to my buddy's metal concert. Now, if you don't know what metal is, then you should definitely check it out on Spotify. It's really loud, a lot of growling or screaming. You can't hear a single word they're saying unless you're a seasoned metalhead, and then you can start to pick it out. But I decided I'm going to go to this metal concert, and at the time, I'm pretty sure I was wearing sweatpants, slippers, and a weird striped sweater. I didn't care about style then, and I don't now. Nothing has changed. But I just remember walking into the metal shows at the place called The Phoenix in Petaluma, California, and I, right when I walked in, I saw two girls, and, and one of which I had met once before. Maybe I'd met them both once before, but I had heard a lot about one of these girls. Her name was Jessie. She was a good friend of a couple friends of mine, mutual friends. We both sang, we both loved music, and I heard that me and her needed to sing together. So we had met one time shortly. What's up, baby? I see you. I just gave it away. Dang, she's, she's my wife. Anyways, so we had met one time, but I walk into the Phoenix, and I just remember, of course, I'm, I'm 17 years old, and I have this fake confidence, right? Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I got this. Like, I got the swagger, even though I'm shaking in my boots on the inside. And I walk right up to them, and I just remember saying hi and, and gave Jesse a hug that night. And we hung out at that concert, and I just remember coming home, and actually my mother's here today, so she can attest. I came home, and no joke, 17 years old, I just met Jesse for the second time, and I was like, hey mom, I just met the woman I'm going to marry She's like, what? No. And I think my friend Robbie was there. My mom's friend Karen was there. There's a lot of witnesses here. And so ultimately things started off really well with me and Jesse. It was like this plan was working. We started hanging out. I tried to use my voice to like sing to her in parking lots of basketball games in high school. I don't know what she was thinking, but for whatever reason she decided that she was going to date me. And it was cool because... We were both Christians. We both grew up in the church. We both had a knowledge of the word and of the Lord, although hers definitely exceeded mine. But our relationship wasn't super godly. I was kind of like a weight for her. I was not the kid that your parents would want you to date, right? Like, this is not who you would want your daughters to date. I was not that good of a kid. My parents rarely ever heard me cuss, but I cussed like a sailor. I claim the name of Christ, but when you look at my life, uh, wasn't quite lining up. And, I, and I, I believe that I was saved, and I had been saved, but I guess the word I could use to describe my walk with the Lord was lukewarm. And we're not there yet, but in two weeks we're going to look at the church of Laodicea and you're going to see what that means. So here's what happened. Jesse and I are dating. She's a junior and I'm a senior and everything's going well. And then she goes on a mission trip. And my buddy told me, he said, hey, mission trips and dating relationships are not a good thing. Every time your girlfriend goes on a mission trip, they come back and you get dumped. Like, it's surely going to happen. I'm like, no way, no way. So Jesse comes back from the mission trip, and this is crazy because I know, like, I know when she's supposed to get back, and I whip out my flip phone, and I'm like, weird, she hasn't texted me yet. And, like, time goes by. I'm like, oh, no, Leaf, Leaf was right. She's going to dump me. And she did. She did. It was funny. I remember literally I was in the fetal position on my friend's bed just crying, weeping, because this woman that I was going to marry, it just ripped my heart out. But here's what's funny. This went back and forth for a long time, but ultimately Jesse kept dumping me over and over again after we kept getting back together. And at a certain point, she got called 
into a deeper walk with the Lord. She had a moment where the Lord was like, hey, are you all in or are you not? I need to know. Like, what are you going to decide? You're either going to be living for the world or you're going to be living for me. So she had made that decision and then it became more evident that, yeah, Mitch has got to go. So what does she do? She's all fired up on Jesus and apparently she had heard this teaching from a dude named Paul Washer. If you know anything about Paul Washer, he's the most intense preacher that you can hear these days. She heard a teaching on Matthew 7, so she decides, I'm going to give this, I'm going to burn this onto a CD, kids, sorry, you don't know what that means. I'm going to burn this onto a CD, and I'm going to pass this out to a couple of my friends, one of them being Mitch. I feel like she was trying to give me a hint. Let me just read the passage that he was talking about in Matthew 7, it's verse 21. He's at a youth conference, Paul Washer is, listening in my car. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus to the people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, workers of iniquity. And and I remember, guys, as I was listening to this teaching... For whatever reason, maybe it's the first time I'd heard it, maybe not, but I sat there there and I was shocked because I had never heard that there were people that were going to think on Judgment Day that they were good with God when they weren't. And here I am, one foot in the church and one foot in the world. See, I had avoided the major sins, right? Like I hadn't gotten drunk and hadn't, hadn't had sex and hadn't smoked weed, but I was just like every other deceitful young high schooler. Like if I knew there was a line, I was trying to get as close to that line as I possibly could. And so I didn't have a desire to honor God necessarily. And, and I was a dangerous place to be. And so I listened to this sermon and I go, oh no. Like there are people that are going to think that they're good with God on judgment day when they're actually not. It was a wake-up call for me. Today, guys, we're in the book of Revelation still. We're going through a series on the seven letters to the seven churches. And and today we're going to look at a church that was very much in a Matthew 7 type of spot. It's a church that had the reputation of being alive, but they were dead. If you open up to Revelation chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to start dissecting this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Verse 1, the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Up until this point in our letters, Jesus has revealed himself as many things to the churches. Write to Ephesus, says the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The church of Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the church of Thyatira, he who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are burnished bronze. What we see is that these titles are important. Jesus is revealing something about himself. He's referencing something that we read in Revelation chapter 1. But these are all important to note. Alexander McLaren, he's a Bible commentator, says this, the titles by which our Lord speaks of himself in the letters to the seven churches are chosen to correspond with the spiritual condition of the community addressed. In other words, we have to find out why it is that Jesus said he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we've got to figure out what that means. So we'll start with the seven stars. In Revelation 1.20, we read that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And Jeremy addressed this in our first teaching in the series in Ephesus. There's a couple different interpretations. What does this mean? It could literally mean the angels of the churches. It could mean spiritual representatives of the churches. Or most likely, it can mean the pastors or bishops of those churches. But either way, Revelation 1.16, it says that the seven stars are held in his right hand. And in our verse 1 right here, it says the words of him who has the seven stars. So these stars, these leaders, these spiritual representatives, they belong to Jesus. And they're his. And then secondly, we hear of the seven spirits of God. Him who has the seven spirits of God. And you go, what in the world does that mean? Revelation 1.4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne of God and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness. And, and when you dig into this, when smarter people than I dig into this, they go, yes, this is a Trinitarian greeting. He who was and who is and who is to come, that's the Father. And then in the middle you have from the seven spirits who are before the throne. You go, that's odd. And then it says from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So you have the Father, the seven spirits, Mr. and the Son, right? You put it all together and you go, yeah, yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's language used all over the Scriptures. And not only that, but the number seven, if you know, is this number of completion or perfection or fullness in the scriptures. So again, I don't want to dig too deep into it, but when you read this, you go, okay, the words of him who has the fullness or the the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the complete and perfect Holy Spirit and the seven stars. And we continue on in verse one, the second half there. It says, Sardis... I know your works. Up until this point, Jesus has used these same words in his introductions. I know your works. But there are commendations to follow, like in Ephesus, right? He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. To Thyatira, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And what a joy it must have been for these churches to hear that the all-knowing, all-seeing God knows what they're going through. They're commended for certain aspects of their walk with him, what they're doing as a church. But then we come here to Sardis and, and there's no such commendation says, I know your works, Sardis. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Before we carry on, I think to bring some clarity, let's look at some historical context real quick. So Sardis, a city in Asia Minor, just like the other letters to the churches, a very important city back in the day. It's now in modern day Turkey. And, and this is a really important note. I don't want to get too much into historical context, but this is super important. This city was 50 miles or so east of Smyrna. And Smyrna, if you remember, was the second letter that we read out of these seven. Pastor Sam taught on that. I want you to mark that just 50 miles to the east. Before Jesus was on the scene, the Romans took control of the city and ran things. This is Roman city. Along with that came pagan culture, idol worship, temples to Artemis, and the like. Just what you would expect, like we've heard about in other letters. But interesting about Sardis is this. There was a large, powerful, and wealthy Jewish community there as well. So there's a couple universities that have been doing archaeological digs in Sardis since like the 50s. And one of the things they uncovered there is this synagogue right in the middle of town, Jewish synagogue. And that too is going to play a role. So why does all this matter, right? You have the Roman culture and you have a big Jewish community there and right smack in the middle is this church, Christian church in Sardis. So Sam brought this up, but Romans, for one, thought that their leaders were gods. Right? What, 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 was the, what, were they, what were people supposed to call Caesar, right? Caesar is Lord. And they worshipped idols. So on one side of this Christian church, you have this super gnarly pagan Roman culture. And Romans, when they would conquer a land or come into a city, right, they would then decide what religions were legal or illegal to practice in that city. And Sam had mentioned in the letter to Smyrna that the Jews, or Judaism, had a pass. Right? That was deemed a legal religion. So in this pagan city, there's a synagogue of Jews there. And Christianity, if it was viewed as a sect of Judaism, would get a pass as well. But Christianity, although we read the Old Testament, is much different. What they believe, what we believe, is much different than what these Jews believed. So these Christians, if their religion was deemed illegal would face persecution from the Romans. And if they preached the gospel, saying that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one that was to come, that would make the Jews mad. And then they'd face persecution from the Jews. So in this cultural climate, you would expect that Sardis would just get pounded from both sides. Christians say we're not going to worship your idols, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is, and hey Jews, everything that you believe is pretty much wrong about the Messiah. Stop looking for one that is to come, he already came, his name is Jesus. Those things would get you into big trouble. If you need more evidence of that, look at the letter to Smyrna. If you remember, that's the one that Paul taught, and he talked about this tension. And what did Jesus say to Smyrna? That's the letter where it's like, man, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. You may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. And then he says this, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And in the beginning of that letter, he reveals himself as the one who died and came to life. He's like, hey, I've conquered death. It's something that you might be about to face. Like, prepare yourself. This is going to be brutal. And Smyrna would stick their necks out, if you would, for the sake of the gospel. They weren't backing down from the foundations of the faith, though there was persecution and opposition on all sides. So they got what you would expect in a climate like that. They got persecuted listen to this quote from McLaren again of Smyrna what you find no I'm sorry of Sardis 
what you'll find is there's no word of persecution. Just 50 miles to the east of Smyrna in the same time with a climate that is just as brutal against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they didn't get persecuted. McLaren says this, of course it had no persecutions. Sardis had not life enough to be obnoxious. Why would the world trouble itself about a dead church? Why would the world trouble itself about a dead church? And here's what we start to gather, guys. Sardis didn't want to be persecuted. So what do you do? You soften the truth. You you fail to preach the whole counsel of God. This is going to be a theme in our study today. You start to kind of take some truths that aren't as palatable to the standard person in your community and you start to not address those things in an attempt to blend in. I'm not going to say this because the Jews aren't going to like that. And I'm not going to speak this truth because the Romans aren't going to like that. And we don't want to be like Smyrna. We heard what's happening to Smyrna and that does not sound fun. So we're fine. We'll keep doing our Christian service and works. We're going to find this in a little bit. We'll keep meeting and we'll keep gathering, but we're just going to soften the edges of the message that we preach so that we don't cause wrinkles. So Sardis caves to pressures from Jews and Romans in an effort to not face heat for following Jesus. No ripples or wrinkles, nobody's mad or offended, but here's the thing. We get the idea or the picture that perhaps this church was booming. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead, right? So it's like in the city, they're well thought of. Perhaps a lot of people were coming to the church. But all that was for nothing. Because they were failing to stand up for the truth of the gospel and preach again the whole counsel of God. So they were dead. There's a quote, death is the condition of those who are separated from Christ, not receiving from him the better life into their spirits by communion and faith. Into this condition the church in Sardis had fallen. People and bishop had lost their hold on him. Their hearts beat with no vigorous love for him, but only feebly throbbed with a pulsation which even his, Jesus' hand, laid on their bosom could scarcely detect. Their thoughts had no clear apprehension of him or his love. Their communion with him had ceased. Their lives had no radiant beauty of self-sacrifice for Christ's sake. And their Christianity was dying out. A good buddy of mine once told me or shared a picture with me of, of relating the Christian life to a steam train. What happens, right? The, the train is stopped. And if you YouTube how a train steam engine works, then you'll find some details about a guy that's shoveling coal in and there's flame and there's fire and it's hot and then there's water and the water creates steam and the steam pressures, like builds up pressure and then it, and it fuels or, or pushes the cylinders to go and, and ultimately the steam engine would be going. But what do you need? You need coals, right? You need fuel, to fill up this steam train. So I like this picture. When it comes to the church and the individual, you look at the train and you go, okay, you get saved or perhaps you hear about Jesus so there's a good work going on in your church and what happens? Everybody's just stoked. Shoving coal into the steam train as fast as they can. And to get that train rolling, it takes so much. So much work and there's life excitement and then what happens is when the train starts going quicker right there's momentum being built up then because we're human beings and prone to 
sin, right? You stop putting coal in. You stop putting fuel in. You just kick your feet up and you go, wow, we're doing pretty good. Look around us. Like everything's going well. Let's rest for a little bit. Let's stop. And, and maybe, yeah, we're doing well. So maybe let's make one compromise here and then maybe another compromise here. And then what happens is pretty soon you're coasting and all momentum soon is lost. The spiritual vitality or the life of an individual or a church has seemingly left. Verse 2 in Revelation 3 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. First of all, Jesus says, hey, wake up. I listened to a teaching from my good friend Stephen. He was teaching on this passage and he said this, look, everybody needs a spiritual alarm clock. Some people in life, the, his good friend didn't use an alarm clock to wake up in the morning. I have a friend that like down in Mexico, that was their thing. It was like, we're just going to pray and the Lord's going to wake us up at the right time. And we're not going to use an alarm clock. We don't need that. We'll wake up whenever we're supposed to. But people like me, I need it. Like you can ask my wife, my alarm clock goes off. I don't even know what's happening. I just know there's a loud noise and it's hurting my ears and I need to turn it off. Like if I had a hammer to smash my phone, I probably would in the middle of the night because I don't want to get up. But when it comes to waking up spiritually, waking up from the dead, waking up from your sleep and slumber, you're in desperate need of something or someone outside of yourself to come and wake you up. You need a spiritual alarm clock. And the way to wake up is to come to the one who, listen, has the seven spirits of God. Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit of God to come and wake you up. He breathes life into dry, brittle, and dead bones. And this is what's so cool. I was thinking about this as I was studying, going, man, if we need the Spirit to wake up, how do we need the Spirit? We'll get into this in a little bit. We turn to the Gospel. We remember God's grace and what Jesus did. But also, did not Jesus say that if we're lacking the Holy Spirit, like, He's a good Father and He'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You guys remember that passage? said, if you guys, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's almost like Jesus at the beginning was like, hey, it's important that you know that I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everything that I'm about to tell you about your illness and your sickness, you cannot fix it on your own. You need something or someone outside of yourself. You're going to need me and my spirit and I'm willing to supply it. Wake up, strengthen what remains about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Listen, Sardis was still doing Christian activity or service. I just want to say this again. Again, my buddy Stephen ultimately said this. It's so funny that when you're dead spiritually, there's no life. What you can actually do is to think that you need to, again, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do more stuff. So you're like, wow, I need to do more service and I need to like, take care of these people and I need to serve more in the church. And, and what he said is, is true. You can actually use Christian service and work as a masquerade for spiritual deadness. Like you're trying to hide something so you just do more. And it covers up the fact that you're dead. And, and, and it's been said many times, I didn't make this up, but what you're doing is you're polishing the outside of the cup. You're not dealing with what's really on the inside. It's, it's wretched in there. There's no life. Maybe there's a, a tiny ember like a pilot light under a water heater, but it used to be this raging wildfire. And you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do about that, but I've got to figure this out because I've been a Christian for 20 years and I need to be better than this. And so you just serve and you serve and you serve and you cover up the fact that there's no spiritual life or that flame is dying out. They have a good reputation, they're still doing works, but Jesus says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Why were their works not complete, right? Is Christian service bad, Christian activity? Absolutely not. But again, what, were the, what was the problem with this church? 
They didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And so to not ruffle any feathers, what ends up happening, and there's evidence of this more, but what ends up happening is you stop preaching the gospel. Why would they stop preaching the gospel? Because it's offensive. I was listening to a teaching by this dude named Vody Bauckham. He's legit. But he turned to Acts 17. I don't, you guys don't have to turn there, to be honest. right? But Paul, Paul preaches. He preaches the gospel. And there's a big group of devout Jews there. And, and what happens is some people believe when he preaches the gospel... But I remember I actually taught this when we were live streaming in the hub and nobody was allowed to come to church. He, he was preaching, some people believe, but then these devout Jews were so mad that they grabbed a mob and they're like, we're going to have to, let's take this guy out. And it almost cost Paul his life. Some believed, some rioted, or as Vodi said, there was both revival and revolt. And then what happens, Paul goes from there to Areopagus, to Mars Hill, right? And he's not surrounded by Jews, but it's Greeks. And so he starts reasoning with the Greeks. And what happens is as he's testifying to Jesus, we find that some believe and some don't. But listen, the gospel is offensive and Jesus knows it's going to be offensive. It's not that we have to be offensive while preaching the gospel. Don't get me wrong, right? It's not that we're the ones that should be jerks. The gospel in itself is actually divisive. And here's what I mean. Matthew 10, 34. It's a passage that rarely gets quoted, I feel like. Kind of a crazy passage. Jesus says this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it you preach the gospel some are going to believe and some are going to push back hard they don't want to be told that there's an authority a God that made them who's perfectly holy and holds them accountable for every act of rebellion and disobedience that they have ever done They don't want to hear that one day we're all going to stand before this glorious God and we're going to give an account for everything that we did on this earth in this life. They don't want to hear that the wrath of God abides on them if they are not under the umbrella of God's grace and Jesus' blood. Now, don't get me wrong, there's good news, and that's why people go one of two ways, right? You either are cut to the heart, like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching, he's filled with the Spirit, and he says, guys, this Jesus whom you crucified is the Lord. You need to turn from sin and turn to Him, trust in Him, put your faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says that they were cut to heart, and they go, Peter, what do we do? Like, if that is true, and I stand as I am guilty before a holy God, and I'm going to face His just wrath and judgment, what do I do? And then Peter comes in and tells them, hey, repent and believe each one of the name Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Right? A way has been made for people to be saved. A way has been made for people to be made right with God. But it's offensive. It's offensive. So somewhere along the line, right, they decided we need to stop preaching this. And I'll say this, guys, if if you're not preaching the gospel from the pulpit, you're surely not standing on the foundation of the gospel. Right, so this church in Sardis, 
they were not standing on the firm foundation which is the gospel and they needed a return to that very gospel which is what we read in verse 3 remember then what you received and heard Sardis keep it and repent if you will not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you what do you need to do wake up remember then what you received and heard what did they receive in here the gospel right, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says when I received this news as being the most important thing I delivered that to you to the Corinthian church and I'm assuming that Sardis heard the same exact thing because it wasn't a mystery right this is the foundation of the faith 1 Corinthians 15 says this now i'd remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you whoa doesn't that verse ring true with the church that we're reading about by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. It's almost like this church in Sardis received the gospel, they heard the gospel, but then they've departed from the gospel. They're not holding fast to the word that was delivered to them. That's why Jesus is calling them to turn back. Remember what they received and heard to keep it and repent. But here's the news. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried in accordance with the Scripture, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and then to more than 500 people. One time. So what do they need to do to find life, to regain spiritual vitality? What do they need to do to get more of the Holy Spirit? They need to remember the gospel, which is what they heard at first. Go back to it again. Keep it and repent. I love this, that guy Vodi. So why did he say keep it? He asked the question. And Vodi said this, because we always have to work to keep it. We always have to work to keep it. This is what gathered, right? You, you go to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If you're a church that's not preaching the gospel, then there's no power and there's no salvation. You're, you're missing the foundational peace right Satan would love it if every church were like Sardis the church is full there's no seats for anybody there's no parking spaces it's just jam-packed but at the same time there's none of those things but there's no Christ being preached either and Satan would be like, yes, they can just go talk about how they can make their lives better. They can go talk about trivial things. But as long as they're not preaching Christ, then I'm okay with it. Right? That would be a disaster. So we always have to work to keep it. And then he says, repent. A change of mind that results in a change of behavior or action turning from your sinful ways turning back to Jesus and going to the cross of Christ to realize that it's not about what you've done it's not about your works it's not your reputation that saves you but it's the perfect and complete work of Jesus Christ what he accomplished on that day as he conquered death took the wrath of God and then rose from the grave if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Here's language of the second coming. Again, this is part of the offense of the gospel. 
Jesus is coming back. The Bible tells us clearly that vengeance is his. We like to address certain aspects of Jesus or certain certain characteristics of God's nature. We try to like not talk about certain parts, but others we want to address. It's like, no, we have to talk about the full or the whole counsel of God. And part of that is that Jesus will execute judgment and justice for those who have despised him and rejected his name. I don't want to think about that, but I have to because it's fuel and motivation to preach the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And I want people to be saved and I want Jesus to be glorified. Verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White. Purity. Righteousness. Holiness. These people are found worthy, obviously not because of their works. If that were the case, then the people of Sardis would have been worthy because they were still doing the works. It's not a worth of their own, but it's a worth that comes from Jesus Christ. Bacham said it's an alien worthiness, a worthiness found outside of themselves. In verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Guys, we need to read this again real quick. We need to figure out what the difference is between soiled garments and white garments. He says there's a few names in Sardis. The people haven't soiled their garments, okay? So the people that have rejected the gospel, stopped preaching the gospel, caved to cultural pressures, and have departed from the truth of the whole counsel of God. They've soiled their garments, but the ones that conquer, they're going to be clothed in white garments. We must get the white garments. McLaren says this, there's nothing said directly about the means by which that purity, the white robes, can be attained or maintained. It's taught sufficiently in other places in the scriptures. But what in this saying Christ insists upon is that however it is got, it must be got. In other words, in order to walk with Jesus, there's a righteousness, a purity that must be attained. You have to have the white robes. How do you get them? Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. Revelation 7 verse After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in what color robes? White robes. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen verse 13 Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And this last verse... Again, my buddy Stephen, I, I hadn't remembered this in a while, but it's so good. He was the one that, that's saying this. He says, oh, here's the secret. How do you get the white robes? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed 
their robes and made them white. Does anybody know what's coming next? In the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is not logical. Blood is not white. It pushes back against our fleshly tendencies to earn things. It pushes back against our fleshly tendency to work for things or make payment for our own screw-ups, right? I have this independent spirit where I go, I got to work to attain the things that I get. And if I can get white robes, I need to figure out what I can possibly do to get the white robes on my own. And then you read this and you go, well, how do you get them? You walk over and you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's it. And your soiled garments, wretched filthy, sinful garments are then cleaned in the blood of the Lamb. Church, we need to do the very thing that Sardis is told to do. Remember what we received and heard and keep it. Church, this morning I want you guys to hear myself to hear that it is all about Jesus and what he has done. Take your garments. Come to Christ. All you have is your failures and your screw-ups You're not going to measure up to the perfect standard of God's holiness on your own, but you come in faith and say, God, I should not be in this place, but because of your grace, you told me that I can come boldly. So my garments are soiled. You know more than anybody else. You know all my sin, and I'm going to, by faith, wash them in the blood of the Lamb and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And He is going to make me pure. Double imputation. Christ on the cross takes our sin and then we get Christ's righteousness, purity, holiness shown here by these white robes. And in so doing, we come to Jesus. We confess His name as Lord as we come to Him. Let me close out by saying this. Jesus says, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, if you're in here and you have not, if you're watching online and you have not washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb, your garments are soiled. There is no hope for us to measure up again to that standard with those soiled garments. You need to wash those robes in the blood of Jesus remembering that it is finished, that He took the wrath of God, that He bore our sin, though He had no sin Himself, so that any who would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then He conquered death and rose from the grave, and He's alive right now. There was no way of salvation for us, but the way has been made. You must receive and believe. Receive the gift of grace and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord, turning from your sin and turning to Him. And then if you're in this place and you go, Mitch, I feel like I'm spiritually dead. Can I just see this picture, right? Like, 
sometimes the fire burns so brightly, right? There's zeal and there's passion and there's fervor and, and you're all for Jesus all the time. And then sometimes you feel like, where did that flame go? And then what happens again, you start looking inward. You're like, what can I do to fix this? What did I do to mess this up? What did I, like, you just start thinking about works, 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 and, and you need to hear what the Lord says to Sardis as well. The answer is not found in covering up your deadness with doing more works. You too need to come back, remember within what you received and heard, keep it and repent. It's simple, it's crazy simple. But Jesus paid it all, we need to remember that. And then church, lastly, in closing. Guys, may we never leave or depart from the gospel. May we be a church that is always founded upon the firm foundation of who Jesus is, what he did, that good news. Gosh, lest we think that we're alive because our church is full and, and we think that everything's going well because there's so much service going on, so many good things and social justice reforms and feeding the poor and we get so busy that we forget to make sure that even amidst cultural pressures, even when we feel like nobody wants to hear it, when it makes people mad and when people turn away, we can never, ever, ever leave or depart from the gospel. You guys pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are so humble before you, God. This, this passage would have been so scary if the solution was, hey guys, you're dead. I need you to do better. Right? I, can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do better. But Lord, instead, we read this and we go, okay, I'm just going to continue to throw myself on you and your grace. I was saved by that grace. I'm sustained by that grace. God, would you give us strength and courage as perhaps the cultural climate in America begins to shift and change. Maybe there's a day, Lord, where preaching the whole counsel of God is not something that's legal or accepted in this country. Would we not cave to pressures and become like Sardis? But would our foundation always be the truth of the gospel and will we not shy away from ever speaking truth no matter the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's typically we have worship after service, but not this morning, guys. So I just want to say thank you for hanging out. Pray that you guys can talk about this stuff in your family, with your friends. Um, have a blessed week, guys. And uh, hey, a couple weeks till Paul gets here. I'm super excited. Guys, keep those hopes up. Keep those spirits up. The Lord's good even in these trying times. God bless you guys. Love you.